Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to hear scripture, I pray that you would quiet our minds, calm our restless spirits, that we might be more open and receptive to your word. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew verses 1 through Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, "Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him." When Herod, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan. Uh, you know, we've been leaning pretty heavily into the more traditional church calendar recently. Today is Epiphany Sunday. Uh, Epiphany was on Friday. Uh, Epiphany is always January 6th, which is exactly 12 days after Christmas. Did you know the 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days after Christmas, not the 12 days before Christmas? Um, that doesn't change your life, I'm sure, but it's fun to know. Uh, but speaking of life change, who's, so who's the type who... Uh, between Christmas and New Year, like the tree is out on the curb by New Year's Day. Anybody? Trees are just gone. Yeah. Whose tree is still up? Anybody's tree still up? Anybody's tree going to stay up through like February at least? That's the, the Dunaways. We love to keep our tree up just way longer than we should. Um, it's just fun. It feels good in the darkness of winter. Uh, Epiphany Sunday is a Sunday when we, it's close to Epiphany and it commemorates not just the 12 days of Christmas, but the arrival of the three magi, I'm sorry, not three, of the magi who came to worship Jesus. Now, thanks to the marketing genius of Home Depot and Walmart, now we get to a holiday and the very next day we flip the script. So we start celebrating Christmas like in October. And I don't know if you, I was in Walmart a couple weeks ago, the week before Christmas, and they already had Valentine's Day candy out. Did you guys notice that too? It's just incredible. Like we... We're always anticipating something, 
But we miss something, we lose something when we move on so quickly. And that's, in a sense, what Epiphany is all about. It's about lingering and reflecting, not just on the beauty of the birth of Jesus, but on the blazing center of the Christian faith. And the more I've, I've been thinking about this, about Epiphany and about the story of the Magi, which we're going to think about this morning, the more I realize the story of the Magi really is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus. That's what we're going to reflect on this morning. The good news that Jesus came in all humility for all people, including and especially the very people who seem furthest from the kingdom. So in Epiphany, we remember the Magi who came to worship the child Jesus. It's a story that's often told as part of the Christmas story. You see it in the Christmas pageants and in the Christmas services and things like that. In reality, we don't know the exact timeline. In all probability, the Magi came and visited Jesus somewhere between six months and two years after he was born. So even though your nativity scene shows the Magi kneeling before baby Jesus, they're probably coming and just trying to catch up with toddler Jesus, who's right at that age, that really sweet life stage. Parents, remember this stage when everybody else thinks your child is cute and you are exasperated by them because they won't sit still and they won't stop moving and they won't stop talking and life is hectic and your house is never clean. Ask me how I know about this. That's the Jesus, holy little terror Jesus that the Magi are probably visiting. Just imagine this in your minds. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that the Magi were kings. You know, we we sang the song, We Three Kings. We don't know that they were kings. They probably weren't. There probably were more than three of them, but there were three gifts, and so somebody, I guess, writing the song assumed three kings. But what's beautiful about this story is that We really know so little about it. We know so little about the Magi. In fact, we don't even really know who the Magi were. We don't even know what the word Magi means, which is part of why I think it's it's a good word for us to use and to lean into. It's just a word we get from, so when Matthew wrote it, uh, his gospel in Greek, they were called Magoi, and you can hear how we get Magi from the word Magoi. It's the same word that we get our word magic from. And that gives you kind of a a little bit of a sense of who the Magi were. Here's what little we know about them. They were experts, recognized experts in interpreting the stars. So they they knew the celestial, the constellations and what star, and they would interpret those and figure out what was going on in the world through that. They probably did practice some forms of magic and sorcery. They interpreted dreams. They were known as dream interpreters. You might call them astrologers. Maybe sorcerers would be a pretty good word for who the Magi were. They were foreigners. They were not good Jews. They were from the Far East. All of this gives us a better sense. These were not just a group of very distinguished-looking people from the same group. These were These were foreigners. They didn't fit in at all. They had no business being in Bethlehem visiting Jesus. And to the Jews, the Magi were even worse. Jews considered them to be frauds. Because here they are practicing sorcerers and interp- practicing sorcery, interpreting dreams, trying to make sense of the stars. And the Jews are saying, just worship Yahweh. 
Worship God. He's revealed. He's shown himself to us. They're religious frauds. So much so that, that in the Old Testament, actually, usually in the Old Testament, when the Magi appear, the Jews mock them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's, here's one from Isaiah 47. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, this is Isaiah basically trash-talking the Magi. He says, bring your astrologers. That's the Magi. Bring your astrologers forward. Bring them out. Those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. They're like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They can't even save themselves from the power of the flame. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement, is it? Here's one more example. This is from the prophet Daniel. Now, at the time, Daniel is interacting with the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And he'd had some really, Nebuchadnezzar had had some really uh, gruesome nightmares. So he calls Daniel in to help him make sense of these dreams. Remember, the Magi were experts at interpreting dreams. And Daniel says, listen, no wise man or enchanter or magician, magician, that's the Magi, or magician or diviner, none of them can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Throughout the Old Testament, God sets his people up as almost the anti-magi. We are fundamentally opposed to these frauds. Which makes it all the more surprising that the magi see a star in the east. We don't know exactly what that, we don't know what the star was, but something compels them. They don't know anything about the star other than to know we need to start making our way to Jerusalem. So they travel a very long distance, at least hundreds of miles, maybe more. And remember, at this time, they're traveling on foot. So we're talking a journey of weeks, at least, maybe months. Verse 10 tells us that when they finally find Jesus, they have to make a little stopover in Jerusalem. Then they make their way to Bethlehem, which is only about five miles south of Jerusalem. They find him, and they're overjoyed. Our translation says they're overjoyed. That, I don't like to do this a whole lot, but I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit here. That's kind of a weak translation. The King James gets it better. The King James says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That's not bad. If you translate literally into English, this is very wooden, but it gives you a, a sense of, of the spirit that's going on. It says they, they saw the child Jesus and they rejoiced with joy, very great, very much. It's really awkward Greek. It's even more awkward English. But you know, sometimes you get so worked up about something and so excited about something that you, you just can kind of like stammer and stutter and all you can think is to repeat yourself and think of synonyms for what you just said. That's what's going on here. That's the sense of excitement that they feel at having seen Jesus. In fact, they're so excited that they threw themselves to the ground. They didn't just bow down. They threw themselves to the ground. And your, and your nativity crashes at home. If you set up the nativity scene, you know the magi are there and they're kneeling very delicately, making sure not to get any dust on their robes, right? But the best Greek-English lexicon, when it translates this word, it says, here's what it really means. It means to throw yourself to the ground. To throw yourself to the ground 
as a sign of devotion or humility, especially before high-ranking persons or divine beings. I mean, it's almost like the Magi lost control of their speech and lost control of their bodies. They were so overwhelmed with joy at having seen Jesus. They worship him. The Magi, the religious frauds, the people who are completely opposed to Yahweh, the true God, worship Jesus. Oh, and by the way, they give the gifts. Remember the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh? I heard a story uh, just this year. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story of a church Christmas pageant, and the child narrator gets to that part, and he says, the Magi gave gifts of gold, common sense, and fur. (laughs) And I think, those actually might be better gifts, (laughs) nowadays at least. (laughs) Uh, Gold, gold is gold. We know what gold is. Uh, Myrrh was a perfume and also used as a painkiller. It was medicinal. And frankincense is a kind of incense. Makes it, sm- it smells really, really good. Um, they're all very costly gifts. They are all gifts that you give a king. They're not, they're not the last-minute Amazon gift that you're just scrambling to find something because you have to give a gift and you hope that two-day shipping comes in on time. No, these are thoughtful, over-the-top, <laughs> costly gifts. I mean, imagine what Joseph and Mary are thinking when these men come and they worship And they throw themselves to the ground and they give gifts that are worth tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars to their little baby. This is true, genuine worship from the magi, the imposters, the frauds, the outsiders. It's it's as if, and this is Matthew chapter 2, the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. It's almost as if, and Matthew actually does this in chapter 1 as well, Matthew is taking very clear pains to tell us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the misfits and to the outsiders. God's kingdom, in a sense, is a kingdom of misfit toys. Anybody else watch Rudolph? Do they still show Rudolph? They must show Rudolph on TV. I don't know. Now you can get it on Netflix. And remember the, the old one, right? The stop motion, the stop motion Rudolph. And they get to the island of misfit toys. Remember that scene? And they come across all these toys that have somehow been made wrong. And there's the train with the caboose that has square wheels. And there's the bird that doesn't fly, but it swims. And my favorite is the host, uh, the jack-in-the-box named Charlie. Like, no kid wants a Charlie in the box. And there's like something wrong with every single toy. And yet, I mean, one of the beauties of that scene is that all of these misfit toys come together and become a meaningful, supportive community for one another, even though it seems like nobody else wants them. I read just a couple of weeks ago that in the original, the first year that they showed that movie... There was the Island of Misfit Toys, and then that was it. We never hear from them again. But the public watching that special knew, something within them knew that these toys need a, a greater presence and a greater role. So they wrote, um, they wrote a greater presence and a greater role for the toys into the story. And that's why, so now when we watch it, they come back. Because there is something in, there's something in the public, there's something in our souls that says this is the way This is the way it ought to be. Now, if you haven't seen Rudolph, if you're you're millennial, millennials, I'm a millennial. If you're younger, Gen Z, you might not have seen uh, Rudolph. Have you seen Toy Story? Remember all all the toys in Sid's room in Toy Story? Same idea, exact same thing. So if you're not tracking, 
Think the toys in Sid's room. The Magi teach us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of misfits, of misfit toys, that even ancient sorcerers and astrologers who have never met the true God can worship Jesus and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. The Magi teach us that no matter your background, no matter your history, no matter your experiences, the Magi teach us that no matter your anxiety, no matter your imposter syndrome and you're just desperately afraid and hope that nobody catches on that you're the imposter that you always feel like, the Magi teach us that no matter your sin, no matter what, that Jesus doesn't ask you to fit in. All he asks is worship me. Worship me. In your way, it can look completely outrageous, but worship me, and you are welcomed into his kingdom. That's all. It started occurring to me, it was just recently this week, so I haven't really had time to flesh it out, but in all probability, the Magi had terrible theology. They didn't know Jesus. All the text says is that they were worshiping Jesus as king of the Jews, which is a political title, not a religious title. They weren't worship. They probably weren't even worshiping Jesus as the son of God. They didn't know. Most Jews didn't know. The Messiah, they thought, was going to be a political figure. They didn't know much about this Jesus that they came so far to worship. But they knew there was something. There was something about Jesus that captured their souls and wouldn't let go. They knew so little, but they did the best they could with what they had. And therefore, one of the... um, one New Testament scholar, Don Carson, wrote that the Magi probably worshipped better than they knew. It was imperfect. It was incomplete. It may have even been to some degree inaccurate, but they worshipped as best as they knew. And here we are still talking about them 2,000 years later. Meanwhile, where are the Jewish religious leaders? Every single commentator, every single commentary that you read points this out. Where are the Jewish religious leaders while the Magi, the least likely, are worshiping Jesus? They're sitting in their easy chairs comfortably at home in Jerusalem. So the Magi come from the Far East. They know there's something going on. They call Jesus the king of the Jews, so they know they need to go to where the Jews are. And they're at least savvy enough to know that, well, the kingdom of the Jew or the capital city is Jerusalem. Let's go there and start asking around. And as you can imagine, the best of the best religious leaders, the best of the best Jewish religious leaders probably live in the capital in Jerusalem. So the Magi come and they ask, and it's the very chief priests, the best of the best, the scribes, the most educated, the best religious people who tell the Magi, oh, he's down there. In other words, here's what happens. The Magi, the foreigners, the outsiders come and ask, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? And the priests and the teachers of the law respond with a lazy yawn. I don't know. 
I mean, they should have been the first to be knocking down the door. If there was even a hint or a whiff that the Messiah had been born, they'd been waiting for him for a thousand years, a second David. They should have been the first to come and see, is this true? And instead, just a casual, like, I don't know, try Bethlehem. They had great theology, the Jewish religious leaders. They knew their Bible. But again, Don Carson, quoting from Don Carson, he teaches us that formal knowledge of the scriptures does not in itself lead to knowing who Jesus is. You see, so often in God's kingdom economy, so often, the outsiders wind up on the inside. And so often, this is sobering, those who thought they were insiders are surprised to find themselves on the outside. It's as if God is saying, I don't care about your religious habits. I care about your heart. It's as if God is saying, I don't care how much you know about me. I care whether you know me. It's as if God is saying, I don't care how much you work for me. I care whether you worship me. And let me tell you that for a pastor, that's a challenging truth. My livelihood depends on knowing about God and working for him. And here are the Magi confronting me, and I hope confronting all of us to some degree with the question, are we content to just know about God, or do we insist on knowing him personally? Are we content to just say, I work for him, and that's good enough, or will we insist on worshiping him? There's a great uh, Anglican bishop in the 19th century, J.C. Ryle. Here's what he writes about the Magi. This is so good. He says, there may be true servants of God in places that we should not expect to find them. Indeed, the Lord has many hidden ones like these wise men. There are some traveling to heaven at this moment of whom the world and the church know nothing. They flourish in secret places like the lily among thorns and waste their sweetness on the desert air. But Christ loves them and they love Christ. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of Jesus. You see, the Magi offer a stark warning to us, to the church person, right? To the person who never misses a Sunday, who goes to all the events, supports the church, serves the church, gives money to the church. You get the idea. The Magi offer this warning. Don't let your religiosity get between you and Jesus. On the other hand, to the misfit, and to the wanderer, and the insecure, and the unsure, and the lost, and the unfaithful, and the broken, and the hopeless, the backslider, whatever. This is exceedingly good news. Do you see? Because if you seek Jesus, if you really seek Jesus, 
and worship him. You will find him. Later on in his ministry, when he's an adult, Jesus will say very famously, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you worship Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Or as Jesus will say later on in his ministry, I'm paraphrasing here, many prostitutes and pimps will enter heaven before the most devoutly religious among us. Here's a longer way of saying that. This is a quote from a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. It's by Brennan Manning. If you haven't read it, I suggest you read it. It is is transformative. This is a longer quote, but hang with me. Here's what he writes. He writes, Because salvation is by grace through faith, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, he's, he's um, imagining the scene from Revelation 7. Among them I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could, faced with grueling alternatives. I shall see the businessman, besieged with debt, who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. I shall see the insecure clergyman, addicted to being liked, who never challenged his people from the pulpit and who longed for unconditional love. I shall see the teen who was molested by his father and is now selling his body on the street, who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God that he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. And then the voice says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all, clung to faith. And he finishes The quote in his chapter this way, I love this. He says, my friends, if this is not good news to you, then you have never understood the gospel of grace. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, is the kingdom of misfit toys, of people who have no business being there and yet whom he welcomes because we worship him. You know, the only way, by the way, that we can find a home among misfits in a kingdom of misfits is if our king himself is something of a misfit. So as we close, let's consider Jesus himself. Jesus, who exchanged his heavenly robe, which was probably a very nice robe, for a scratchy swaddle, who exchanged his heavenly throne, which was probably a very nice throne, for a feeding trough filled with a donkey's slobbery straw, who, as we read in John 1, came unto his own, and yet his own received him not, whose family mocked him, 
friends betrayed him, whose own followers deserted him, and whose own people, swept up in the delirium of the mob, shouted over and over, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And as he hung on the cross, and as the the air and the life seeped out of his lungs, the sign above his head read, in three languages, by the way, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, the king of the Jews. There he hangs, our king. Behold our king, our misfit king, who was crucified, died, and was buried who descended into hell and on the third day you know how it goes he rose again from the dead and if we have been united with him listen closely this is Romans 6 if we have been united with him in a death like his then surely we will be united with him in a resurrection like his we are a kingdom of misfits yes who by grace worship our misfit king Brothers and sisters, behold our King. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach us to behold you, to worship you imperfectly, without knowing everything we feel like we should know, without doing everything right. We stumble, we trip, we skin our knees. We don't do it right. But like the Magi, teach us to brush all that off, to count it as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Teach us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.